so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Glad you could join us today, and uh, as usual, there's there's plenty going on, so let's jump in with both feet. Got a weird question for you. Well, for some people, this will be a weird question. For people who are paying attention, it may make perfect sense, but here's the question. What are your spidey senses telling you? I kind of laugh when I ask the question because I, I worked with a with a co-host once upon a time, and uh, and she swore that she was you know to some degree clairvoyant or part gypsy or something like that, and she would tell me things like my spidey senses are tingling and I understand there's some money about to come into your life. I really liked when she told me that kind of stuff, by the way. But on a broader scale, do you get a sense that things are shifting? And I don't just mean politically; I mean generally. There's a tectonic shift taking place in the world around us. And I don't think very many people would, if you were to ask them, well, is it a good shift? I mean, are things getting better? Are we just on this unending arc ever upward to an easier, more comfortable, happier life? I'd wager most people would say, no, not really. In fact, if anything, it seems like a lot of stuff is right on the brink of coming apart. Well, I came across an article by Clarice Feldman. This was published on AmericanThinker.com. Something big is coming. Now, I know you're thinking she's really sticking her neck out on this one, but I want you to hear some of her analysis as to what is coming and what to look for. I thought she had some great insights. And she starts by citing Dilbert creator Scott Adams, who tweeted last week, The country's energy is strange. Everything is amped up in every direction. Something big is coming. Now, Clarice Feldman says uh, Scott, uh, Scott Adams is, is rarely wrong about such things. Adams says he doesn't know what that something big is, but she says, I'm hoping it's a major shift in America's political tectonic plates. Maybe I'm looking too hard for it, but I, too, feel it in my bones. So here are a couple of the reasons why that shift seems to be coming. And I think it actually spells there could be some good news, but there's also a bit of danger attached to this. We start with the infrastructure face plant. Clarice Feldman says, for one thing, the wacky spending program the Democrats were proposing and fiddling with seems to have hit the shoals, trapped between the far left and more moderate senators, uh, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. Even the leftward politico can't spackle over the dilemma, a dilemma that's the only thing preventing Democrats from turning our constitutional republic into a totalitarian socialist economic mess which only the most authoritarian and corrupt could rule over a greatly impoverished citizenry. This is what Politico said. 
Politico said for the second time in less than a month, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her leadership team had to delay a vote on Senate passed inf- the Senate-passed infrastructure bill amid progressive opposition, denying President Joe Biden a much-needed win as Democrats' bigger $1.75 trillion social spending plan also remains in limbo. I think it's wholly apparent that today was not a success, said Virginia Representative Abigail Spanberger, whose state has a high-stakes gubernatorial showdown that Democrats were hoping to boost with the infrastructure vote. Because people choose to be obstructionists, the swing district Democrat added, we're not delivering these things to my state or to the rest of the country. I guess we can just wait because apparently failing roads and bridges can just wait in the minds of some people. Now, Democrats slunk out of the House chamber embarrassed, furious at the liberals who dug in and a White House that refused to pressure them to relent and openly fretting about the long-term repercussions given the tough climb they face in the midterms. So there's, uh, you know, again, a mixed bag. That uh, that bill is spending on steroids. And while on the one hand, it's kind of satisfying to see that it's crashing on the rocky uh, shore of reality, it also means that uh, Democrats, particularly those pushing the bill, are probably starting to sense, hey, we may be losing our grip on power. Now, that represents a bit of danger in the sense that what would they do to re-solidify their grasp on power? That's the problem with power seekers and opportunists. It's not enough just to get power. you got to be able to maintain it. And typically crises are where they have their most uh, opportunity to, to garner and to maintain that power. Here's the second thing that uh, Clarice Feldman points out, and that is the Virginia gubernatorial race. Now, this was supposed to be an absolute shoe-in for Terry McAuliffe for a second term as Virginia of, uh, governor of Virginia, rather. But it seems like he was in a lot of trouble. Good polls can only measure general sentiment, but Clarice Feldman says, in my view, all I've seen show that sentiment has rapidly shifted in favor of his opponent, Glenn Youngkin. Now, she says, to my mind, McAuliffe's fatal miscalculation was to stand with the teachers' unions, the obstructive, dictatorial Loudoun County School Board, against the parents. Northern Virginia is heavily populated by tech and professional federal employees who in recent years have tended to vote Democrat. However, these are the people who can be expected to be concerned with the public school education of their children. And McAuliffe, reflexively tone-deaf to such concerns, placed himself perilously on the third rail. How bad was his campaign going? Well, so few people turned out in rallies uh, rallies in places like Arlington, Virginia, that he actually skipped showing up at those final rallies. Now, remember, these are rallies that were designed to snowball voter support. At one of those rallies, Farrell uh, Williams, I may be saying his name wrong, Farrell Williams, anyway, noted hip-hop singer and music producer, told the crowd, it's okay if they want to vote for Glenn Youngkin. Now, that's not exactly something you would have expected to hear. At least the rally organizers probably didn't want to hear that. That's okay, whoever you vote for. It's not like it's going to make a huge difference. Hey, man, you're supposed to be in the in the bag for our guy. She goes on to point how the odious and discredited Lincoln Project tried to help McAuliffe by staging a pretend white nationalist display for Yunkin. I suppose because they were torn between trying to pay honor to diversity while simultaneously trying to smear Yunkin. They included a young black man in the mix of demonstrators, immediately undercutting the message of the scam that this was a white nationalist demonstration. In fact, one of the white nationalists was the financial director for the Young Virginia Democrats. 
So about the same time this ploy flopped, others reminded voters that McAuliffe had defended the present Democrat governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam's appearance in blackface costume. And it also turned out that McAuliffe's spokesperson, who also worked for the uh, Harris and Biden campaigns, had posted racist tweets in 2012. Oh, dear. Just as hashtag me too backfired this week against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, now charged with a misdemeanor sexual offense against a staffer, the cancel culture mining of ancient racist comments is now backfiring against the Democrats who made this something of a cottage industry. And then days later, McAuliffe was charged with accepting an illegal laundered $350,000 contribution from a Sri Lankan businessman. Apparently, the National Legal and Policy Center is asking the Federal Elections Commission to promptly investigate whether the contribution to the Virginia gubernatorial candidate violated federal laws prohibiting campaigns from accepting political donations from foreign nationals. Washington, D.C. Attorney Paul Kaminar, counsel to the NLPC, who drafted and filed the complaint with the Federal Election Commission, said Terry McAuliffe has a history of accepting foreign contributions. And the FEC must fully investigate these serious charges that he accepted $350,000 in illegal foreign contributions for his current campaign. Lycatel, LLC, owned by Sri Lankan British national Alaraja Sabaskaran, gave McAuliffe $350,000 back in July, according to the Free Beacon. They reported on this back in early October. That company is a New Jersey subsidiary of Sabaskaran's UK-based telecom conglomerate, which boasts a complicated web of offshore businesses and has been the subject of tax fraud and money laundering charges in France. Sounds like politics as usual to me, but hey, I'm a little more jaded than some on these issues. Now, in in this case, Clarice uh, Feldman says, of course, as you imagine, North Virginia voters, whose main source of news is the Washington Post, they will know little of these things as the paper actively supports McAuliffe and buries these stories. So she says, if you know any, please send the link to this. Now, she she did a little bit of a a prognostication here saying, if, as I hope, McAuliffe loses, it will mean a gut check for those Democrats heading into a 2022 re-election fight. Because it will tell them that people are sick of this craziness and that their own careers are in danger. She says, I expect that since their personal political careers are the first of their interests, self-seeking congressional Democrats will cut their strings to the loonies in the squad and the Sandernistas. Now she talks about changing the climate. Ostensibly to chat with the Pope about such theological issues as climate change, apparently the latest religious belief superseding what most people consider Catholicism, uh, President Biden, who reportedly took 800 staffers with him to the climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland, cruised through Rome in an 85-vehicle motorcade. I mean, what more could you ask to show how seriously Biden takes the issue of greenhouse gases and fossil fuels? She has a point there. Seriously, if world leaders were actually taking, you know, sailboats, riding bicycles or something like that to get to these big meetings, I'd think, wow, they really are serious about it. But no, they're driving the most gas-guzzling, carbon-emitting, you know, greenhouse gas-creating contraptions on the planet and doing it in great numbers. We're not supposed to notice that. So kudos to those who do. Speaking of serious... Clarice Feldman says, how can you not laugh at a president so stupid that he said, when you buy an electric vehicle, you can go across America on a single tank of gas, figuratively speaking. It's not gas. You plug it in. Sure you do. 
and you have to plug it in every few hundred miles and wait for hours for it to charge unless someone somewhere has invented a very long, sturdy extension cord. And of course, plugging it in requires electrical power from somewhere, and there's a substantial shortage of it because of the same loony energy policies that are now forcing up gas and electric power prices around the country and the world. Then you have immigration follies. Thousands of aliens already heading toward the border to join the more than one million who already illegally crossed under this administration. And, almost entirely unvetted, have been transported around the country. Citizens, many of whom jumped through the years-long hoops to satisfy what's still immigration law totally ignored by this administration, are incredulous at the latest report, as Roger L. Simon explains. He says the Biden administration is in talks to offer immigrant families that were separated during the Trump administration around $450,000 a person in compensation. That's according to people familiar with the matter, as several agencies work to resolve lawsuits filed on behalf of parents and children who say the government subjected them to lasting psychological trauma. The U.S. Departments of Justice, Homeland Security, and Health and Human Services are considering payments that could amount to close to a million dollars a family, though the final numbers could shift, those familiar with the matter said. $450,000 a person? This will, while millions of actual tax-paying American citizens are suffering, barely able to make ends meet during the pandemic, and inflation is on a record pace? Not even Anthony Fauci, allegedly the highest-paid government official, makes that much, at least in salary. Psychological trauma? How about causing psychological trauma to a whole country at once? Never in my life have I heard anything so insane. Now, Clarice Feldman says, no matter how hard the mainstream press tries to bury such stories, ordinary voters can't miss the fact that the administration's idiotic policies and tinkering have already resulted in supply shortages, higher prices, higher energy costs, and terrible schools that are miseducating their children and undermining parental authority. Just as bad, she says, all of this would lead to even higher taxes. So voters are waking up, and she says that to me means the ground is shifting under the Democrats' feet. That is something big. What do you think? I don't think she's wrong for the examples that she points out there. I can't say, you know, whether this this means that, uh, boy, the Republicans are going to come riding back. I know there's there's talk that uh, this shift could mean that Trump is a much bigger player come 2024. I guess we'll just have to watch and see, but definitely there is some opportunity here. I don't know where I would focus my attention. And, and I don't want to sound like, a, like I'm being fatalistic here, but I just have so little faith in, uh, in, in federal-level politics. Take it back to the state and local level, there may be some, some bright spots. But those federal power seekers and opportunists, man, they are... They are really holding on for all they're worth. Going to shift gears here now and want to talk a little bit about uh, masking. You know, from the very beginning of the pandemic, that mask issue has been recognized by some as more than just a preventative measure or something that we try to do to mitigate the risk of spreading coronavirus. In fact, for a lot of us, uh, it was seen as a dehumanizing tool of coercion. So I want to share with you a few thoughts from a psychiatrist in the UK by the name of Robert Freudenthal. 
And he gives a very solid explanation of the true meaning of masking. Now, this is an article published by the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org. You might even want to consider subscribing for their daily or weekly emails. They seem to have some really solid information when it comes to uh, what's going on in terms of the pandemic and the lockdowns and so forth. Robert Freudenthal says, My mask protects you. Your mask protects me. That's the message the UK public health authorities and local government have been promoting. Now, the mask mandate in indoor spaces was removed in England on Monday, July 19th, 2021, but continued in Wales and Scotland. Now, many continue to campaign for a return of the mask mandate in England with a belief that this is the missing tool in England's public health strategy that would lead to a lower prevalence of COVID-19. Now, of course, they have to ignore that Scotland and Wales, who kept the mask mandates, still have had higher case rates despite continued mask use. So he says the weakness in the evidence for the efficacy of mask wearing in community settings is well described. There's simply not enough. There's not sufficient evidence that mask wearing, particularly cloth masks, is significantly effective in preventing viral transmission in community settings. To support the certainty stated by that slogan, my mask protects you, your mask protects me. Now, Dr. Freudenthal says proponents of this slogan, despite giving significant meaning to the wearing of masks that bears little relationship to the underlying scientific evidence, have been seemingly unable to consider other ways that masking may be experienced beyond considering those that choose not to wear masks as being selfish. Yet, of course, a cultural shift as dramatic as expecting all adults, and in some cases children, to cover their faces, is likely to cause a whole variety of responses, which may be helpful to reflect on in an attempt to make sense of such a change. So he talks about masking as a relational tool. And remember, this is a psychiatrist speaking, so there may be some vernacular here that you and I aren't familiar with, but this largely makes a lot of sense. He says masking can act as a tool through which particular relational dynamic is enacted. Specifically, the coercive nature of mask mandates means that masks are being experienced as being in one part of a coercive relationship. So that relationship could be described as a moralizer versus those in need of moral correction or an enforcer versus the enforced. Wearing a mask represents an entry into a relationship of this type, of this type rather, and a refusal to wear a mask is therefore one way of exiting this dyad. Now this sense of enforcement or being moralized is compounded when our relationship with authority and government is transactional and enacted along existing lines of power and inequalities. If we're all going to be citizens existing in society together, each with unique and various perspectives which deserve to be heard and thought through, and government is just one partner within that society, then perhaps some members will assess the evidence in their personal risk and the risk in their homes and workplaces and will make the decision to wear a face mask. Others will come to a different conclusion perhaps on the grounds that the evidence for their efficacy is weak, and so that wearing a mask will not significantly change one's exposure to what may already be a very low risk, and they may decide not to wear a mask. But if we are people within a society with an authoritarian structure, where our ability to participate and do the things that we wish to do every day are conditional on the approval of the government, then our way of relating with power structures is no longer one of partnership, like, we're all in this together, but one of behavioral correction, 
In such a system, the mask becomes a tool for enacting that behavioral correction. In the role enforcer versus enforced or moralizer versus needing of moral correction, the enforcer slash moralizer role can be enticing. After all, exerting power from a position of moral judgment has been an attractive position for government and those in positions of leadership in institutions since time immemorial. However, for those of us on the other side of these relationships, those experiencing enforcement or being moralized, it's an oppressive and suffocating relationship. In these circumstances, removing a mask is not a sign of not caring. Rather, it becomes a safety valve and one small step toward exiting a controlling and oppressive relationship. I can tell you from first-hand experience, when, when the masking began in earnest, I was skeptical, but only because I saw the authoritarian flavor that seemed to come along with the masking. And that's what made me believe that maybe there was something to this. My conscience was saying, if you go along with this, you're essentially saying, I consent to this. Something which uh, Dr. Freudenthal points out a little bit later on in his article. He talks about masking as an attack on our communal life. Saying compulsory masking represents an individualistic belief that illness and health could be removed if only we all behaved in a certain way. And it ignores the much more significant structural drivers of illness things like economic inequality and poverty. It suggests that at its core, interpersonal relationships are the true drivers of illness, and therefore our interconnectedness and relational lives, rather than being the very essence of our humanity, are now a risk that should be managed and ideally avoided. Masking gives off the message, I am an infection risk. You are an infection risk. We are to be avoided. Don't get close. I'm better off away from you. Stay away. Now, this is a profoundly isolating and individualistic message that we as humans should consider ourselves first and foremost to be infection risks and are better off in isolation than in connection. And not only is such messaging not compatible with the ideas and ways of relating with one another, which are necessary in order to have a communal life, it's also based on the mistaken fantasy that it's possible to be isolated and distanced. Of course, it's not. So instead of being in relationship with and interdependent on the whole variety of ways in which different people, groups, and services provide for one another, the isolated and distanced individuals instead become dependent on the government, alongside a small number of tech companies to meet our basic needs. That is an authoritarian organization of society, such that our primary relationship is with government and large corporations instead of with one another in all of our diversity, and therefore, he says, masking can represent an attack and hollowing out of our communities and our communal life. Now he goes on to talk about uh, the trauma-informed approach to masking, basically saying if you have trauma that you have dealt with in your life, masking can, can revisit that trauma. It also provides an accessibility issue for people who have, uh, for instance, hearing impairment or people who are on the spectrum of autism. These are other reasons people may not want to choose to wear a mask. And finally, he talks about masking as a representation of medical power. And if you think about how medical authority has shifted just in the last couple of years, this to me is the most chilling spot of the whole situation. 
In fact, uh, Dr. Freudenthal says wearing a mask under that uh, medical authoritarianism signals to others, I consent to this system. I consider myself to be an infection risk to others and wish to be governed as such. And significantly, I invest in the medical system as the authority to make and impose decisions on society independent of democratic and legal safeguards. Pretty crazy stuff, huh? But here we are. So if you're one of those people who has drawn the line and said, I won't put on the mask, just know there are some people who get it. You're not being selfish. You're not being foolhardy. You're not being reckless with your own life or the lives of others. But you are definitely asserting your authority over your own life and your own well-being rather than signaling your consent to some nebulously defined authority that wants to control you. I say well done. Keep that mask off and keep up the good work. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. Healthy Cell makes a wonderful line of products. And I want to spend just a minute with you on REM sleep. Do you know Healthy Cell's product has calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four-stage human sleep cycle? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. Through the phases, fall asleep easily. That component of sleep is favorably impacted by melatonin, lemon balm extract, and GABA, lowering the body temperature. That element is influenced by glycine, magnesium, and calcium. Deep lasting sleep, L-theanine, vitamin D3, and vitamin B6. And finally, creativity boosting REM sleep. 5-HTP, vitamin B6, and GABA. Many of us think we need to sleep because we're short on sleep, but we need quality sleep. So please consider Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. I have one tonight, and I'm going to have a much better night's sleep if I uh, compared to if not taking it. So go to uh, HealthyCell.com, and in the promo box, uh, type in out loud, and that'll give you a 20% uh, discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders, and this is the America Out Loud Network. Take the time to note who the sponsors are as you listen to this and the other shows on the network. Take the time to reason within yourself, hey, do I need what this uh, particular sponsor is offering? And if you do, do business with them. Let them know that their message reached you. And if you don't need it right now, maybe refer somebody who does need it to that particular sponsor. 
Let's talk for a moment about uh, the official explanations for the current supply chain mess. Now, I don't know if you're seeing this uh, like I'm seeing it where I live, but empty store shelves, at least uh, gaps in the store shelves, is becoming a very, very common sight. So common, in fact, that it's really not that big of a deal anymore. Isn't that strange? It doesn't take very long to get used to things changing dramatically. But the official explanations for why this is so, well, let's say they're just a little less than on target. Ryan McMacken from the Mises Institute actually has a really enlightening explanation as to what is driving this current backlog of ships waiting to be unloaded. And believe it or not, he points to monetary policy, specifically the Fed's inflation, as being behind the supply chain mess. I thought this was a really well-done explanation, and that's why I'm sharing it with you. Ryan McMacken says, It seems supporters of the Biden administration finally settled on a narrative they like for explaining away supply chain shortages. Here's the administration's talking point. The U.S. economy is rolling along so well that Americans are demanding huge amounts of goods. That's overwhelming the supply chain and causing the backups roiling America's ports and logistic infrastructure. So, for example, uh, Transportation Secretary Buttigieg this month declared demand is up because income is up. Because the president has successfully guided this economy out of the teeth of a terrifying recession. Oh, yes, I'm sure most of us were feeling exactly that. Yes, thank goodness we're under the steady and and competent hand of uh, Joe Biden at this moment in in our history when we have so many different threats and so many different uh, crises that we're facing. Not. Similarly, White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki told reporters supply chain problems are occurring because people have more money. Their wages are up. We've seen an economic recovery that's underway. Now, of course, this position has been mocked by a number of conservative politicians, including Senator Ted Cruz and commentators who find it to be an absurd assumption. Indeed, Cruz and other critics could point to a variety of factors, ranging from the weight of government regulations to the problem of COVID lockdowns limiting the productivity of supply chain workers. But listen to this. Ryan McMacken says the administration's defenders are right about the consumer demand and spending, even if it's for the wrong reasons. As Mihai Makove showed earlier this month, the global volume of trade and shipping volume in 2021 have actually exceeded pre-pandemic numbers. For example, in the port of Los Angeles, loaded imports and total imports for the 2020-2021 fiscal year, which ended June 30th of 2021, were both up when compared to the same period of the 2018-2019 fiscal year. In other words, it's not as if little is moving through these ports. In fact, more is moving through them than ever before. So that does suggest that demand is indeed higher. But why is it higher? Now, in some ways, he says it's true that, as Saki says, people have more money. But that, however, is where the veracity and usefulness of Biden's defenders end in explaining the problem. In fact, Ryan McMacken says much of the answer can actually be found in monetary inflation. Now, obviously, Joe Biden hasn't successfully guided the economy through anything. But it is accurate to say that people have more money in a nominal sense. Wages are up nominally. After all, if we look at the immense amount of new money created over the past 18 months, we should absolutely expect people to have more money sloshing around. 
But this also means a lot more pressure on the logistical infrastructure as people buy up more consumer goods. So the idea that supply chain problems are driving inflation gets the causation backward. It's money supply inflation that's causing much of the supply chain's problems, not the other way around. After all, as of September 2021, the money supply has increased from $15.2 trillion to $20.9 trillion since February of 2020. That's an increase of 35%. Now, yes, some of that's been kept within the banking system through the Fed's payment of interest on reserves. But a lot of it clearly has entered the real economy through stimulus payments, unemployment insurance, and federal deficit spending in general. Originally, the public was saving a lot of that stimulus and bailout money, and with the personal savings rate actually uh, hitting historic highs of over 25%. But this past summer, the savings rate collapsed again, and as of September, it's back under 8%. So the public is now flooding the economy with its former savings. Now, Ryan McMacken says the American appetite for spending on consumer goods hasn't gone away. Yet there are many reasons to suspect that this spending spree is unsupported by actual economic activity and is a phenomenon of monetary inflation. For example, today's tsunami of spending raises questions when we consider there are still about 5 million fewer people working in the American economy than was the case in early 2020. That means fewer people being paid wages. And without monetary inflation, an economy with millions of fewer workers suggests there should be less spending. Additionally, spending increases when the public demands that inflation is going to increase. That is, if there is a perception the value of money will decline, the demand for money will decline also. I mean, that makes sense. If you knew your dollars were going to be worth less each day that goes by, you'd be pretty quick to spend them, you know, to get them converted into something that's tangible. Some kind of a tangible commodity. As Ludwig von Mises noted, once public opinion is convinced, the prices of all commodities and services will not cease to rise. Everybody becomes eager to buy as much as possible and to restrict his cash holding to the minimum size. And that means more spending. It's a phenomenon that's already clear in home prices and grocery prices. Now, the public may suspect rising prices are here to stay. Meanwhile, the Consumer Price Index, a very limited measure of goods price inflation, is nonetheless near a 35-year high. What that means is now is a good time to spend. With 2020's panic-induced savings uh, savings subsiding, Ryan McMacken says people are now wondering if their savings produce any returns. But ordinary savers are now surely remembering that the interest rate, the interest returns rather from savings right now are next to nothing. Thanks to the central bank's ultra-low interest rate policy, we live in a yield-starved world. And that's okay for hedge funders who can participate in carry trades and other high-yield forms of investment. But regular people are stuck with interest rates that don't keep up with price inflation. So it makes more sense to spend dollars rather than to save them. So Biden's people are correct in a certain sense that people have more money and that demand is up. That's just what you would expect in an inflationary environment. And he says we should expect demand for everything but money to be up. The question is, however, how much of this windfall will continue in real inflation-adjusted terms? And the answer is it's too early to tell. Although we can see that inflation-adjusted median earnings collapsed 6.3% 
year over year during the second quarter of 2021, we can see that real GDP growth has dramatically slowed. But at least as far as the third quarter is concerned, it's fairly clear the U.S. was and likely still is in the midst of an inflationary boom. But how long will it last? And I don't know about you, but uh, that that's the kind of stuff that makes me want to, well, only keep as much money in the bank as I'm willing to walk away from. Sorry, that's not exactly a vote of confidence for where things are headed economically. But if your dollar is losing buying power with every passing day. I mean, it's, it's like the people who stuff their mattress, you know, full of dollar bills. There's a really good chance that they will wake up at some point and find that they have a mattress stuffed with paper. Which I guess if you need to blow your nose or something to light your cigar, maybe that's going to work. To my thinking, the smart money is you need some kind of a commodity, something that holds value. And really, the sky's the limit. I mean, it's not like, it's not like, gee, there's only one thing you can do. Put it into silver and gold. Precious metals, I think, is definitely an option. Tools, land, other commodities. Food storage would be another one. How about this? Liquor, coffee, and cigarettes. Particularly if you can get freeze-dried coffee, stuff that'll last for a long time. Let's just say that there was a tough time where the cost of these goods were to go through the roof and they were very, very hard to come by. Very expensive. A person who was willing to do a little bit of bartering could probably do quite well. But if your money exists primarily in the form of electrons and notations on somebody's, uh, you know, ledger somewhere, is it really something that you can claim as your own if you can't put your hands on it? Can you really count it as wealth? I don't know who said it. I want to say it was Charlie Reese who used to write for the Orlando uh, Sentinel. But I think that uh, he, he described wealth is everything that remains when cash flow stops. So if you want to gauge, you know, how am I doing wealth-wise? How much wealth do I have in my life? Take a look around you and pay attention to everything that would stay versus everything that would go away or be repossessed if your income suddenly stopped and you had no more cash flow. I know, it's kind of a sobering thought. I've been there myself, and it's, it's not one of my favorite things to think about, but I think it's a very accurate measure. It's also one of the reasons why I'm much more inclined to, to lean towards commodities as opposed to, you know, just, uh, well, you keep it in the bank, and <laughs> it's as solid as can be. I think we're about to learn just how non-solid it can be. By the way, when people speak about the Great Reset... I don't know what, to, what the thoughts are that go through your mind, but we're mostly left to our imaginations to determine what, what does that actually mean. Ah, oh, yes, the Great Reset. See, to the utopians among us, it's a reordering of human civilization. And actually, to them, it's a stepping stone to a greener world of modern pod, pod living, a utopia. But for the rest of us, Brandon Hurd says, hey, it's, uh, it's a, a fake utopia being sold to us by charlatans. Here's what he says. He says, as we exit the pandemic, expect to hear much more about the Great Reset and building back better. Far from resulting in a low-carbon dream life, however, it's a cartoonish fantasy that will hand the global elite even more power. 
Now, the Great Reset is a term that's been bandied about quite readily by most Western neoliberal politicians. So often, in fact, and without proper explanation, that it strikes the prudent observer as a kind of paid advertisement. But what is it exactly? Well, Brendan Hurd says the term rose to prominence at the 50th annual meeting of the World Economic Forum back in June of 2020. And it was initially launched by the Prince of Wales before being absorbed into the philosophy of the sartorially dystopian sci-fi villain Klaus Schwab, founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. The Great Reset refers to a plan to rebuild the world's infrastructure in a sustainable way. That's their words. Following the economic ravages of the COVID-19 pandemic and to establish a global treaty to prevent future pandemics. Or, as it's described more formally, to build a more robust international health architecture that will protect future generations. Now, if you ever hear people talking about building back better, they are referring to the Great Reset. Probably the most disturbing part of the Great Reset is how much it strongly resembles business as usual, but with an extra dose of globalism. Most of the plan's outlines include a further weakening of national boundaries and individual national autonomy in favor of a more universal governance. And as usual, it's the rapidly vanishing Western middle class which has to shoulder this burden as their freedoms are further curtailed to meet the quotas of corporate media-fueled activism. Now, regardless, many world leaders, no doubt charmed into acquiescence by Schwab's commandingly sinister Blofeld, Blofeld-esque wardrobe, agreed to the Great Reset. That includes uh, recognizable names like Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, Angela Merkel. I don't even know if I want to try this name. Kyriakos Mitsotakis, Mark Root, Pedro Sanchez, Ernest Solberg, and Volodymyr Zelensky. According to John Kerry, Joe Biden's, Joe Biden's administration is on board, too. But the general agreement of the Western leaders is absolutely typical of any agenda which is espoused by NATO, the UN, or the World Economic Forum. If an emotionally charged, politically vague, and ultimately ineffectual edict or bill is proposed by one of these entities, each resembling a shabby, globetrotting team of insurance salesmen, our effete politicians line up to show the most fervent compliance. Something else you may find interesting. As a rule, it seems their solutions to specific environmental or scientific problems mysteriously become entwined with LGBTQ plus rights, workplace equity, open borders initiatives, and other unrelated social justice causes. It's as though any goals they have are somehow unilaterally from the same source, or entail the same solution, regardless of causality or consequence. Therefore, a united response to a global pandemic mysteriously also equals trans rights activism. In their own words, no single government or multilateral agency can address this pandemic threat alone. Together we must be better prepared to predict, prevent, detect, assess, and effectively respond to pandemics in a highly coordinated fashion. Now, there are many other sweeping sentiments expressed by Swab and his acolytes which can seem either trite or threatening. Consider the gulf between what markets value and what people value will close, and we want more attention paid to scientific experts. 
No one can self-isolate from climate change, so we all need to act in advance and in solidarity. Oh, my word. Are you reading between the lines like I am? We all must act in advance and in solidarity. That means fall into line, shut up, and do what you're told. There's also much talk of the pursuit of fairer and equitable outcomes. Now, in this case, uh, Brendan reminds us that international treaties always tend to be about concentrating power. It's one of those rules for life for realists, as there is no escaping power dynamics in human affairs. Real problems don't often have feel-good solutions. Often they require solutions that sound mean, that don't sound good on a corporate goals bulletin. Initiatives like the Great Reset all entail the gradual loss of autonomy of individual nations as their decision-making power is transferred to an international disembodied rulemaker. Brendan Hurd says it has been without a doubt a globalist fantasy for a long time, but the key question is, do they realize what they're doing or not? As far as their amazing coordinated pandemic response goes, this appears to be nothing more than forced worldwide vaccinations for everybody. According to Klaus Schwab himself, as long as not everybody is vaccinated, nobody will be safe. To which the attendant neoliberal world leaders nodded in affirming reaffirming unison, repeating in unison their mantra, global public good. Schwab, despite appearing like a, an immortal brothel keeper at Kublai Khan's Xanadu, is really cut from the same cloth as your typical European Union technocrat. His ideas are not creative. They're quite staid and pedestrian. Research of his career shows they have been unchanged since the 1970s. He has been constantly preaching the very same thing like a broken record. Schwab believes that we can achieve environmental solutions without altering capitalism in the slightest by creating treaties of mutual accountability and shared responsibility, transparency, and cooperation within the international system. In fact, his idea involves ethical capitalism, where the excesses of capitalism will somehow be held at bay by ethical stakeholders to whom the corporations will be held accountable, while conveniently the elites and systems already in place will continue as they are. This is the master plan of the World Economic Forum, largely unchanged for 40 years. The result? A green technocracy, one assumes, with a World Economic Forum-mandated ethical stakeholder apparatus. A worldwide spiderweb organization ruling by the threatened fears of pandemic and carbon doom. No section of society would be exempt from the edicts of the new treaty. I got to admit, from, from, a, from a Machiavellian standpoint of, you know, how do you exert power over people? That's brilliant. But it still kind of ticks me off, and it should you as well. Brandon Hurd says, Brendan Hurd rather says, the Great Reset website appears to be little more than advertisement for modern pod living. It seems to style itself as a low-carbon dream life without loss of modern convenience to effeminate hipsters. One can see slovenly-looking neoliberal youths, frequent references to LGBTQ plus values, and an overall urgency about carbon footprints. Now, there's a hint of adbusters about the website, creator of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Despite the fact that the World Economic Forum and Davos and all associated entries are entirely elite institutions, the website styles itself on grassroots urban activism. 
There's much cringeworthy symbology in its in its white papers, such as a green and rainbow flag combination with face slogans like "We salute you, Zoom Queen." Now Schwab refers to the aim of the Great Reset as the fourth industrial revolution, with the first being powered by water and steam, the second introducing mass production, and the third electronic automation. The fourth will blur the lines between physical, digital, and biological spheres. In this grab bag of magical advances, he says, fields such as artificial intelligence, robotics, the Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, 3D printing, nanotechnology, biotechnology, material science, energy storage, and quantum computing. Now, Brendan Hurd says this sounds like cartoonish optimism as many of these technologies are anything but clean, and they don't seem to de facto relate to sidestepping out of industrialism or anything else. On top of that, fewer than 9% of companies use the machine learning, robotics, touchscreens, and other advanced technologies listed as somehow changing everything. Stakeholder capitalism, as a concept, does not explain itself as foolproof and will no doubt be freely interpreted by the likes of Silicon Valley or supply chain conglomerates. Hurd says the jewel in the crown of the Great Reset optimism has to be the belief that the advent of AI, artificial intelligence, will alter everything positively, again, without specifics, to somehow create a low-carbon new world. He says it appears at best to be all smoke and mirrors a childish corporate fantasy manufactured by isolated bean counters. At worst, it's an international power grab by unaccountable international agencies and hidden oligarchs. Either way, it is a fake utopia at the price of privacy and autonomy, sold to us by used car salesmen who think they are princes. I mean, that's that's a pretty hard smack. I think that one's going to leave a mark, but I don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's he's exaggerating what seems to be at stake here. Going to shift gears one more time here in the few minutes we have left here. Uh, you know, the pressure on the unvaccinated. I noticed that part of the of what Klaus Schwab was talking about was, you know, everybody has to be vaccinated in order for this to work. Okay, we're seeing this and it's not just in America, it's not just in your community. It's it is global. And even someone who's given serious thought to their reluctance to accept the needle may sometimes feel that they're at a bit of a disadvantage to explain why they won't get the shot. Or shots, since now I think it's up to at least three and probably going towards more as far as boosters. I came across a very comprehensive, very highly detailed essay titled 17 More Reasons I Won't Be Getting a COVID Vaccine. This is written by Christian Elliott. I think it was published on Medium i got to double-check this real quick. Make sure I'm not steering it. Nope, it's, it's a different website. Deconstructingconventional.com It's a long, long essay because when he says 17 more reasons I won't be getting a COVID vaccine, that's in addition to the original 18 reasons that he listed before. Looking at the byline up here and it says, this is a 30-minute read. Okay, that's reading at a pretty good clip not out loud. If you gave yourself an hour to read and digest this, I think you would find yourself well served. Find the time to read it. You won't be sorry. Just want to give you a couple of uh, highlights from Christian Elliott. 
17 more reasons I won't be getting a COVID vaccine. He says a lot of people have asked me for an update to my original 18 reasons article. Many have asked if I've changed my stance now that the jabs have been available for longer. And he says, I wish that I could say in the seven months since writing that post that world events and the vaccine effectiveness convinced me that I was wrong. That definitely did not happen. I stand by all my original 18 reasons, and he's linked to them in this particular article. But he says, now I have additional concerns about these jabs, many of which I find even more alarming. Now, as a quick aside, for anyone seeing the title of this article and feeling like, well, it's not relevant because you already got the shot, he says, can you give me one minute? I promise. I'm not your enemy. This article is relevant to you. I'm serious about understanding your perspective, too. And he says, I'm going to say at least two important things you agree strongly with. If you make it to the end and you still disagree with me, then he says, well, that's okay. Maybe in reading what's below, you'll understand why so many people are leery of these shots. Even better, he says, maybe you and I can model some constructive dialogue together. At the end of this post, I'll even offer an invitation to talk with me directly if you think I'm missing the boat. So, with that in mind, he says, let me attempt to start this post with a couple of things we can agree on. Number one, we all want COVID to go away. Fair enough. He says, I like you and beyond tired of this topic. I hate the division it brings, the lives it is claiming, the political football it's become. Number two, he says, we all want a return of our freedoms. He says, as I see it, the challenge with ending COVID is we differ so fundamentally on what that will take. Where one side sees compliance as the path back to freedom, the other side sees resistance as the only way to truly be free again. Unsurprisingly, both sides are exceedingly frustrated that the other side doesn't get it. So we say with contempt, if you people would just do your part, in other words, if you would think like me, all of this will go away. Well, he says, my friends on the other side of this discussion... The idea that one side is going to fold is just not going to happen. So instead of anger, avoidance, or snide comments on social media, come let us reason together. And he says, bridging this chasm of perspective will require a lot of difficult conversations. Probably a Herculean effort and level of grace, deference, and a willingness to look for where we might be wrong. That's our gap. So he says, let's face it boldly and with humility. May a better way start today. So he says, the ground rules for discussion are this. My hope is that you'll consider this post as the next step in an ongoing conversation. To that end, if you're inclined to comment, please do. But the rules of engagement are the same as they are for my other posts. Number one, he says, you must be respectful and treat others the way you would want to be treated. Number two, you have to logically present an argument, not just post a link. And number three, you can't use labels. Anti-vaxxer, conspiracy theorist, blind sheep, etc. Labels are divisive and they're intellectually lazy. So let's do better. He says, agree with me or disagree with me. If I see you break any of the rules, your comment will be deleted. So, enough with the long introduction. And from here he launches into why he is more against these so-called vaccines than ever. Now, I'm not kidding when I tell you it's a very lengthy essay. Number one, he talks about how the vaccines are a massive failure. Number two, he talks about how this has become a pandemic of the vaccinated. In other words, it's the vaccinated who appear to be spreading this illness. Number three, the vaccines pressure the virus to mutate and skirt our immune systems. Number four, 
clearly established highly concerning risks of the vaccines. Keep in mind, he goes into great detail on every one of these. Let's see, number five. Sorry, I scrolled right past it. There's a lot of them. A dramatic number of deaths among the vaccinated. Number six, the flagrant disregard and disinterest in other safety signals. And I'm, that's where I'm going to stop because we're, we're actually coming up against the clock on this. So again, this is from Christian Elliott, deconstructingconventional.com. If you check the show notes, you'll find a link handily provided for you so that you can see this for yourself. 17 more reasons I won't be getting a COVID vaccine. Now, I agree with him in the sense that if you already got the vaccine, that doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're evil. A lot of people found themselves forced into a decision they really didn't want to have to make. But if it comes to putting bread on the table or keeping a roof over your family's head or getting the shot, well, a lot of folks had to make that tough decision and and go with it. But for those who are still holding out, and I'm among them, it seems like our original reluctance may have been uh, may have been the right thing to do ultimately that's a choice you have to make i'm brian hyde filling in for tim alders this is the disciples of liberty show on the america out loud network